to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Marco Pivetta, who is a software consultant at Rove, a PHP web development firm and an open source contributor. Marco, thanks for joining us on Maintainable. All right, thanks for having me. Given that you work at a web consultancy, is it safe to assume that you find yourself diving into a lot of other people's code bases? Yeah, consulting is pretty much diving in other people's stuff and giving advice. So, What do you enjoy about diving into other people's code bases? I wouldn't say I enjoy it. I would say I enjoy the results in the end. So after you looked at it and you find out what people's pains are about why they can't move or why they can't take decisions, why the system is slow, whether they're building the right thing, that's also a good thing. And then at the end, you see either a project being trashed happened, or you see a project getting to decent speed, or you see developers starting to pick up new techniques and getting better at what they do. And at the end of the day, you'd never really get to see a long, long-term vision of what is going on, but you see the results at the end of your consultancy term and you see whether the team got better or worse. And, and that is very satisfying to me. When you're working in these types of projects where, where the team has their own internal developers, are you finding that there is much, or they tend to be very receptive to having some new outsiders come in and help play a, an active role? Or do you kind of see a bit of that sometimes being a really positive experience, or do you see sometimes there being friction just from having some new people coming in and being part of that process? It depends. Uh, sometimes people are really excited. They like the idea of somebody else bringing in some fresh air. There is an interesting factor in consultancy, which is that the higher the rate, the more people listen to you, which <laughs> is weird, but it's actually really true. It's, it's also an anti-pattern. It's called the hippo, the highest paid person that calls the shots. So on one side, you have people that are excited. You have teams that are very receptive of of feedback. On the other end, I happened to be recently in in a position in which I was actually kicked out of a team because I tried to introduce something as basic as code reviews. It's really depending on the culture of the company you work with. You can get something really good and something really bad. Usually the situation is not super positive. They call you in because they want something because they need some long-term coaching or something like that, something is wrong. It never starts with a happy scenario unless they want to build something new. But very often this goes in a good direction and you get some really nice results. Other times people just don't want it. They just got some management people taking a decision to get a consultant. They're already polarized as in, oh, we already had a consultant. They messed up everything. These people don't know what they're doing. And, and in that case, you are basically put in a corner and that's how it is. Are those scenarios more of a like a staff augmentation type projects where they need to add more bodies to the project to get something done and by a certain time versus coming in to help address some existing technical debt or some refactoring projects? And then so it's more about them not hiring a full time employee developer, but a kind of a short term capacity situation. Well, there is this interesting concept that adding a person to a team is basically redoing the team. So you will never get faster by adding a person to the team. And I also tell that to customers 
you shouldn't hire me because you want to get faster to a deadline. Because if you have a deadline and it's already spinning, the, the, the clock is, is running, then you are not going to be faster by adding or removing people mid-project. What I would rather say is that they take you for getting things fixed a bit more long-term. That kind of is the situation. So they try to figure out what is wrong, what can we do? They don't have a full uh, picture. And that's where you need somebody that has seen a lot of pictures because as a consultant, you jump through projects quite a lot, five, six projects a year. Mm -hmm. When when you're working with these teams, what do you find is something that people, whether they be stakeholders, managers and of software development teams or even the software developers themselves, that they tend to get wrong ideas about, say, technical debt? Management and upper layers maybe these days are starting to see technical debt. We are in a very young industry in which a generation of managers didn't even see the wave of technical debt hitting them. So you have people Mm -hmm. that have been working for maybe 10 years in the industry. The projects maybe went well, but the wave of, oh, now we need to upgrade because everything is running end of life. It's not even coming. So the management part, you can't really blame them. They were educated on other topics. It is part of the development teams to make this more evident, make sure that management understands that speed comes from excellence in technical and business to development discussion and communication, and not from just pushing stuff out. And this is what you see a lot of companies do, especially in startups. It's mostly about time to market. And once you reach your minimum viable product, what you see is they try to redo the entire company and try to fix it, but they still have this entire code base that was just Mm. patched together. And they don't really understand that they have to throw it away. Maybe it is a minimum viable project, but they have to at some point throw it away or at least fix it. When you code things in a hackathon quality kind of way, you have just waste there at the end. And refactoring is really hard and technical is really hard to understand because they're really happy about their minimum viable product and now everything slows down immediately. And it's really hard to explain that. Yeah, and then they could be difficult also going through that rewrite process and dealing with maybe not being able to like deliver new features or updates for your existing customer base while you're going through that process. So it's an interesting, when startups need to go through that pivot process, it's always, I feel like there's a, a number of different ways they can approach that, but it never seems like there's like a, really clear, this is probably the best direction in every single case, but it's because it's always one of those it depends types of scenarios. You know, I work at a web agency as well, and we work with startups where they're really putting a lot of emphasis into being really thoughtful about the planning of their project, but they haven't hit the market yet. And so you're just kind of wondering, how much are you investing into something that may never be worth it? You know, and it's like, how much do you pre-build and pre-put everything, bake in this really good engineering focused approach early on, but you don't even know if it's going to stick or not. It's an expensive investment one way or another. So it's an interesting challenge. Like, I don't know if I have any clear guidance for startups there, but. Well, you can reach excellence because excellence gives you the edge in taking decisions. Let's say that now you have unknown unknowns, as in you want to integrate with some endpoint that you don't know anything about and you start looking at documentation. So you start building your 
thing on your end and hoping that it will connect the bridge on the other side and then it bridges off by 20 meters on the left or on the right when you're connecting things. And this can happen. But uh, having technical excellence allows you to throw away parts and just rewrite them to glue things together the right way. It will not be perfect. It will never be perfect. It's code. I, I like to say that regardless how well you write your code, you still have millions of lines of code of kernels supporting it. And it will fail at some point in a way that you don't expect it to fail. But having the technical excellence gives you an edge. It is really hard to achieve that. And it's really hard to teach developers that cutting corners is just going to make them slower. It's pretty much like in school. You're not studying. You're just damaging yourself. It's, mm -hmm. You're doing it for your own well-being. So why are you not studying? And I did that as well. Why did I not study? <laughs> And I realized that. And it is pretty much the same there. And this is also another thing that is hard to teach management and business people, which is that software is not like building a house. You build a house and hopefully it's going to stand there 20 years without much to do. Besides, you know, checking every year that heating system still works or whatever. And it's not really like that. It's not just put some bricks there and then when we're done we leave and we go to the next house good luck with that it's not <laughs> like that it's more like building pipes and changing pipes while the water is flowing it's an interesting analogy i had a plumber coming here and i say can't you just fix this pipe by just you know isolating and doing something like that and he said no if i cut here then we have to call the fire brigade to come <laughs> and pump water out of the basement it's not that simple and it's more like that because it's moving. It's not a static thing. It's always moving. Something's always happening. And if you keep your edge, you have this advantage. Yes, you can push out an MVP, but you need to be conscious about the fact that it is going to be something that will need a lot of work afterwards because after you reach market, you need to guarantee some quality to your customers, some security, and you need to be able to change things as they come up. The more plumbing you do that is not documented, tested, verified, the more it becomes hard for the next plumber to come in and not break a pipe without causing a disaster. If you reflect on your own career as a developer, how has your own perception of technical debt evolved over the years? Good question. Well, I, I started as a very naive developer. I started hacking things together. If you look at my first projects, I was just taking post variables, splitting them by some special characters, then slamming them into an SQL query, just concatenating <laughs> things. Terrible, terrible things if you look at them today. I didn't know any better. If you look at the career of a developer nowadays, it is a really, really steep learning curve. You're jumping in and you need to know all this stuff that we learn by starting doing counter stuff on a website. I wouldn't want to be a developer with one year experience. No, there's so much to learn and it's like bombing you from every side and it's really, really hard. On the other side, tooling, knowledge about the industry has grown a lot. And let's be honest, it has been here since before I was born. There's been lots of literature from the 70s, 60s, up, well, 70s, let's say, about software quality, estimation and stuff like that. We just ignore and it's out there. And honestly, I'm also quite ignorant of it, I must say. We now have a massive amount of people working in the industry, and we're just producing a massive amount of waste. And what I see right now is more potential for 
improving existing software than building new software. There are some fields where research is important. I don't know, self-driving cars, which may completely destroy a kind of <laughs> line of business, but they may change our lives for the better. I don't know. Is it ethical? That's not me to discuss. But these are fields where you can you know, push and say, we want more resources and just try and getting a prototype out and then regulate it and then bring it to the market uh, without a, an accident like a 787 MAX. On the other side, had thousands, hundreds of thousands of websites that were built, pushed out, and they are running on, I don't know, a very ancient version of WordPress and PHP, which is something you see very often. And maybe those could have been static websites because people were pushing it and nobody actually needs the dynamic version. So take those, simplify them, take stuff simplified, take stuff removed that... And there's so much work in that line of business. I think there's going to be half of our people in the industry just working on maintaining stuff. So technical debt is a huge source of work and waste that needs to be fought. And this is why I write actively tooling to fight it, to go against it. And I actively work towards reducing it because... Every bad developer spawns new two or more new job positions. And it takes really little to mess up something that is an architectural decision that will haunt you for decades after. Right. How does your team help companies? Like when you come into a company where you're helping them with working on new features or dealing with some technical debt or integrating with new third-party services or what have you, you know, when you're looking at this big list of technical debt, how do you help them prioritize dealing with that when not everything is probably as important as something else, but how do you help them navigate that? Where Are there things that you try to prioritize or focus more on in terms of helping the developers, their process to be more efficient or quicker? Or do you focus on like technical debt that's actually slowing things down for the end users? Which of those tends to be more important? How do you kind of think about that kind of problem? So one thing that I notice in companies is that typing speed and writing code speed is almost never the problem. It is sometimes the problem in very large corporates where everything has to go through 10 layers of approval in order to start writing a single line of code. In those scenarios, you may get to write 100 lines of code in an entire week, which honestly is a decent amount, but I'm not joking. 100 lines of code per week is perfectly okay. Don't be shy about writing little code. Maybe it's the good code, the important code. But those companies have a different kind of problem. Other companies have massive amount of moved around code. So you see divs that are very noisy. You mm -hmm. have a lot of code that changes in line because decisions over decisions over previous decisions are difficult to integrate with existing code. So it is not really much about speed. It's more about reducing work. So speed is one metric. You can have speed, but if you're pointing to the wrong direction, you may be running in the wrong direction. <laughs> so you have to have the right direction together with speed. So reduce work by preventing useless work. And well, we rove our working with clients, integrating with their team. So we don't take over. It's not like, oh, now we do the stuff and this is how it's done. It's more show and tell. So you build a feature that is required by them, show them how it's done, show them how you have done it, show them maybe how the code got eliminated through it. 
The other thing you can do is integrating with code reviews, as in you don't actually do any real coding for them. You just look at their code, look at what they're doing and help them getting better at code reviews. And code reviews are a very powerful tool for learning and for self-improvement, as in people start looking at the code in a more critic way. Also what they are writing while they are writing it. While you are writing code, that is the freshest kind of thinking you have there. And you can take the best shortcuts to avoid technical debt there. Say, I can just avoid this construct and stuff like that. So these are the two things where you can help. Either coaching or just looking and telling what is going on. Thinking about code reviews in particular, you, know, you mentioned like showing and telling and then actually walking people through things, but then also being a good come into a company and help provide code reviews. What do you think are some technology agnostic? Because I know that you primarily work with a lot of PHP type projects, but I've heard people talk about code reviews as kind of being a, a way to try to bend code to be more consistent within a company in a certain way. But do you feel like there are things that some teams get wrong about code reviews in terms of like things that they're kind of like overthinking? Is it just like you didn't follow the style guide or is this a point of like you did it wrong? Well, if you can prove that something is wrong, then there is a proof behind it. And the proof can usually be automated. So that is the first thing. Mm -hmm. you, if you have something that you know is 100% wrong, such as in a dynamic language, you're passing apple to oranges, you should just have a tool in place that says no. And you remove the human factor because discussing on whether you want apples and I give you oranges and, and you are telling me that I'm wrong and I'm going to be angry at you because I say what I need you to to accept oranges, that's going to also produce friction between people. So anything that should be automated should be automated. Code style, type checking, testing, just to see if the happy path works. Let's say that, let's keep it to a very minimal scenario. These things should be automated. <laughs> if I can, in a code review, prove that you have a specific kind of combination of things that makes the thing explode, then I can just put it in the review there is no discussion about it. There is something wrong about it. And people instead try to make it very opinionated. I saying, I'm going to try and tell you that I prefer it this or that way. Instead of focusing on getting the code more understandable in general and letting these generic problems to the tooling. You make a good point there. I think a lot of the fear of conflict or friction in a code review can be kind of offset by having the tooling handle that part of it. And then you can then focus on thinking about how you as a team is embracing patterns that the tooling can't yet kind of remind people like, hey, we had something similar over in this other app. Maybe if we keep some consistency, it'll make it easier for us to work on these types of problems again in the future because they're similar. Or if we're going to do this, should we also then go back over to this other area of the application and kind of get that to kind of look a little bit more similar as well. So they're kind of following similar patterns. So it's not like every time we have a similar project like this, we're going to choose your own adventure each time. I, I don't see choosing your own adventure as necessarily a bad thing. It is a learning process and you may have been fixated on solving the same problem the same way for ages. And there's also this very scary thought of don't touch the running system in our industry. So you have a system that has been running for ages and has been doing something and then you figure out 
what if we solve the problem that way? There's a fear of experimenting and trying out new things, often because, oh, that guy said so. Every Tyler-based software design, software architecture, the DBA said no, so we can never use fields that are nullable in the database. All this stuff that comes from previous decisions, and now they become some sort of policy, and people are scared of challenging them. We are developers. We are smart people. We are paid to use our brains, and we should do so instead of just going ahead and building with the same solution all the time. So I'm not saying this is all decided, let's change it now, right? Don't change everything once you already decided everything, how it should look and everything like that. But there should be some freedom to change stuff and to break conventions if you're saying, okay, the convention doesn't make sense or the convention is wrong from this point of view. And this is a discussion that developers should hold, and it is part of the code review. And the discussion in a code review is one of the most valuable parts. The other day, I was discussing with other colleagues from the company, and we spent something like 15 minutes discussing three lines of Gherkin, three lines. And what turned out is that this discussion of 15 minutes on something that looked very obvious, but somebody figured out something during review, turned out that we could remove one week of work. 15 minutes discussion in a call after a code review, discussing the code review together. And we figured out, oh, look, we can just get rid of it because it doesn't make sense. Massive amount of work saved just by thinking laterally and not conventionally. You know, I think one of the things that I've noticed with pull requests within engineering teams and thinking about the code review process is just, you know, especially when you've got, say, more junior developers that are kind of earlier in their career and they're looking for some guidance because they're kind of making, you know, there's some insecurity about what they're doing at times. And they're like, well, I'm trying this thing out and I think it's working and they get some feedback. And then, you know, you, earlier you touched on like whoever the most expensive person on the team is of the, the person that decides things. And sometimes I think that happens indirectly because within teams where someone with more experience gives some feedback on something and they're like, well, so-and-so told me to do that, but maybe it was actually wasn't explicitly changed this, but they said, well, did you think about this or did you think about that sort of thing? Or here's an example where we did something before. So sometimes that can like get translated to here's a specific request and I, I don't want to disappoint a senior engineer developer that I'm working with, but do you have any advice on for let's say a junior and or senior developers and how when they communicate these things, they could be mindful about that type of context and the hierarchy that may or may not exist within their team? Well, if you can put it down as the question, there is a good idea that no question is dumb. Right? Unless you were in right. listening, a question is not dumb. So you can ask questions all the time, put down the question in a way that is understandable to few people like a manager, a developer uh, that is junior and a senior developer, for example, right? And then spark the discussion. It is really hard as a junior to jump in and say, I'm going to try this and I'm going to try that. And I want to use this technology, but the project is already decided on that. That is just how it is. Decisions have to be pushed through at some point. And this is also why it's called the junior developer and not the senior developer. Mm -hmm. So somebody is calling the shots, but there should still be discussion about it. There should be still proactive questioning of why things are being done, exactly like a kid does, but why? 
and you should go on with that. If somebody is pissed off by all the questioning, then that's a culture problem. Because as I said, there's nothing wrong with asking and with discussing. And sometimes you're going to be unhappy with the decisions that were taken, but that's how it is. And if the culture is just broken, then it's a big industry. There's a lot of space for everyone, I would say. I'm not saying proactively change job. I'm saying first try putting it in a constructive question-oriented manner. And after you've done that, you can say, okay, I've done everything I could. I'm going to switch to a company where people like working together. Another way of doing this is to not let it come to a code review and instead code it together to pairing. If you really have some different view or maybe you don't understand the system, you keep doing it wrong and you write code for two days and then you get a code review, that's two days of potentially wasted work. If you didn't understand the problem in the first place, it's easier to jump on a call. I work remotely, so for me, it's jumping on a call, mm -hmm. screen sharing, and working like that. Many companies don't understand remote work, but you just do that and chat through it as it goes, and it's much more powerful than trying to collect the pieces after everything has been destroyed in a code review, right. let's say. Especially if you're in a position of being a more senior developer on a team and you have those junior developers, I think being mindful of where they're at and thinking, making yourself available. Cause I think there's always that how much access does a junior developer have to their more senior developers and just on a regular basis, can they, or, or seemingly thinking if your team doesn't have a structure in place for dedicating some time for pairing and the junior has to ask for it all the time. I think one of the things that we've done with our own team is just like, it was, it wasn't something we had thought of on our own. It was until a junior developer said, Hey, I feel like it's a lot for me to have to ask on a regular basis to pair with someone. And it would be great if we could just have this be a consistent time that's on the books, it's scheduled. They know I'm going to be working with someone every week in this capacity. I don't have to ask for it. I don't have to try to negotiate someone's schedule. It's just there. It really transformed our team to just thinking that this wasn't an afterthought when an ad needed basis. It was like consistent. And then, you know, week to week, everybody has things that they're working on with different junior developers. And I think that can be, in my experience, it's been a helpful process. I don't know if it's the perfect process, but it's been, a, I think, a step in the right direction so that people aren't left floundering for too long. They, they know, well, on Thursday, I'm going to have three hours with so-and-so. I'll save this thing till then, and then I can chat with them and work through that problem together. I think there is something problematic in this. Uh, you mentioned something that is a bit of a trouble, which is that availability of seniors may be limited. When I don't get to cold a lot, I get frustrated, I get grumpy. I didn't have an entire week. In an entire week, I didn't write the line of code because I was just helping. But these little pieces of help you give to others uh, have a much bigger impact on the work you do than just cranking out something on your own. Effectively, you need to be interruptible. Somebody needs to be able to come up to you and ask you a question. And you should be able to say, okay, five minutes and we jump on a call. There's still this expectation that you need to crank out code. And honestly, it is broken. There is no need to crank out code. If I help another teammate getting unstuck, this junior may be able to write 10 times the amount of code that I am able to write because I'm focusing on a really, really hard problem that I will solve while in the shower anyway. And they instead will be working on the, I would call it grunt part of the work where they are stuck somewhere and they are losing days of work here. Code is not a big problem. 
I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's definitely a thing that I've struggled with at times myself, but I see people like more senior people deal with that transition going from, you know, you're a junior and a mid-level developer for a long time. You know, you value building things to spec and getting things launched for your customers. You see there's that validation. And when you build something, you see it working and it's kind of like a you get that kind of validation. And I think it's an interesting transition to start going, I'm now going to need to find success through other people's success. It's, it's not as quick of a response cycle in a way. When you're working on code, you kind of get this quick feedback, like this is working, I'm going in the right direction. My tests are passing, what have you, or I fixed that bug, or things are faster. But when you're mentoring, it's a different set of skills that you don't get looking in code. And we're not necessarily training people, I think, enough in our industry to think about how to get into that position. You just kind of end up there one day because you've been there long enough and you've learned a lot. But there's like now all of a sudden this expectation you also are going to spend less time coding and providing mentorship. And I don't think we always give them the tools for that. I think there's people that will invest in themselves and get better at that. But there's other people that are like, I really need to focus on code because that's the thing that I'm good at. But it's also that's what they see as being productive time because they're still in their mind thinking that they're learning. And it's an interesting transition process. We also don't measure productivity right. There's companies that measure it in hours. There's companies that measure it in sprints, in points, in lines of code. Holy shit, please don't do that. Don't measure <laughs> productivity in lines of code. The more code you write, the worse you are, honestly. I write a lot of code that is bad. That is not good. Writing a lot of code is not a positive thing. I had a CEO laughing in my face when I said, we need to write less code. They did just not understand it. I understand that position. It was just their first reaction and they didn't understand it. But effectively, this, this idea of measuring productivity is a problem. I think the productivity is secondary to the goals of what you want to achieve as a team or as a company. You know, you can be a team that is noxious and toxic and you just want to make a lot of money. Cool. Your problem. <laughs> I wouldn't say that's something you want to do. <laughs> In theory, you work together to get somewhere, to be happy about you, what you built and to make the company happy about what you built and to make the stakeholder get his new Ferrari or whatever they want to get. This is not something you would measure on a single person. And it's not something you can measure on a single person. You can also have a team that is going to be challenged with having to integrate with an API, which is just terrible. We go back to the actual legacy code there. Has anybody tried using the PayPal API or the AWS API? Let's be honest, it's well, not AWS, the Amazon Marketplace API, for example. It's, it's horrible to work with those, and they take a lot of time. And it's legacy that they can't change because they have existing customers mm -hmm. working with it. But you see the impact. And now you start measuring the productivity of the single people inside the team, whereas they are swamped because they cannot get that fast because the limitation is not even on their end. So it is hard. Big corporates, I don't know how they do it with the productivity and stuff like that, if they measure it at all. But measuring productivity on the individual is a problem. I think everyone deserves a fair pay as long as they put effort in what they're doing. You don't measure them as in... Like with runners, you run 100 meters faster than the other guy. So did you actually bring the other guy forward while you were running? That's probably more important. That's a good point. So let's uh, transition a little bit and talk about open source projects a little bit. 
Rove has a open source project called the Backward Compatibility Check. What is it and what inspired your team to begin building it? Right. I am working on a lot of tooling around maintaining libraries and trying to make it stable and so on. I mostly work with PHP. Albert Frank, I'm in PHP because it pays well. I don't like PHP anymore. I'm dead inside when it comes to the language. I don't think there's much in it. To the fact that, that we are starting to write tooling to support the language for it to become kind of like a meta language like JavaScript and TypeScript. TypeScript is a good language. JavaScript is a horrible language. <laughs> I would maybe not call TypeScript a good language, but it's a usable language. Whereas JavaScript is absolutely just a nightmare. The same goes for PHP. I dislike PHP passionately, and therefore I want to make it better. So I'm writing a lot of tooling around it. And one of those tools is backward compatibility check. And what I do is since PHP has a decent reflection system and the tooling around it can parse things like annotations, very similar to TypeScript, you can inspect what is going on in a code base by parsing it and compare versions current and previous versions of a library and verify if somebody made a change that is actually going to affect downstream consumers. There are some very obvious scenarios that are backwards compatibility breaks because you are breaking the risk of substitution principle because you are now adding a type restriction where there was none. So you are breaking somebody's code somewhere. Doesn't mean that it's wrong. You can do it. You just need to make a major version and document it, but you need to be aware of it. And a lot of people are not aware of it. The need for this library started from me maintaining other libraries where people would just send a patch and say, why don't we do this thing? They just add the method to an interface. Now, for those that are not really versed in object-oriented programming, if you add a method to an interface in a language like Java or PHP or something like that, what happens is that you are breaking everyone's code that is relying on that interface because they have to now change their code in order to adapt to that interface. This is a very obvious BC break, but it is not very obvious to the people that are sending the patch. And what happened is that I started to be in this position where I would review things, I would know things that are obvious, that are proven to be wrong, and I would comment, and then I would be the bad guy. And I have, I have this reputation of being the want-fix guy. If you go on Twitter, people are actively making jokes about me being the guy of want-fix, invalid, and closed as can't replicate or missing tests. That's me because I'm in that bad spot. So I'm trying to automate myself away. This tool is just one part of the pipeline. There's others. The idea is to remove this question, can I do this change within a patch release or something like that? That is just a question that is answered there. Nice. So you just have this built into your code review or pull request process. They'll run that on your builds and such? Correct. So you just install it. It's, it's a very new library, so very few people are using it. It's probably getting a few thousand downloads now, so it's not much, but you have to consider that it is effectively a library intended for library maintainers, not yeah. for downstream consumers. So you're not going to have the users install this. It's mostly for continuous integration. Yeah, it's just 2,000 installs. That's nothing. Effectively, I want to push this more into the community. So I'm writing that. I'm writing more tooling around type checks in PHP where the language does not support type checks and stuff like that. This is the core 
result of it. Are there any newer tools that you've seen come out in the last, say, three to six months or so that that are kind of for developers that you're kind of like interested in learning more about in the near future? Oh, three to six months. I'm, I'm not really following the trends that much. I think the biggest changes in at least the PHP ecosystem so far are all the type checkers that are coming out. There's one by Vimeo called Psalm. There's a PHP stem. There's fun. I don't know who develops fun, but effectively it's a lot of type checkers. So the PHP ecosystem woke up and said, oh, look, there's this thing called types and it's <laughs> been discovered by my mathematicians and it works. Wow, it works, really? It was not just a legend. And if you put types in your system, then the system works more reliably. If you have a very typed language, I'm mostly studying, I know this is not see, to be seen in recorded uh, you know, podcast, but effectively I'm reading stuff about Haskell these days because it is fascinating that you can just click things together. And as long as they're proven to click together correctly, like Legos, you know, or like in Pokayoke, then they just work. And that's awesome. I love it. And the PHP ecosystem needs to go more in that direction. That's great. Yeah, it's interesting. Where I work in the Ruby community, there's projects similar that are working on introducing type for into Ruby. I think from the folks at Shopify, for example, are working on that. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out in the coming years. I'll be back with my interview with Marco in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions remotely valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, if you have a good story or two to share about ways to improve the long-term maintainability of software and might be interested in being a guest sometime, please get in touch with me at Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now back to our interview with Marco. So let's imagine that there's a few people listening to this episode, I hope, as this is a newer podcast, but they've been at their company for a few years now and don't feel like their concerns about the long-term maintainability have been heard by, say, managers or stakeholders within the organization. Perhaps they've asked or tried a few times to advocate for refactoring areas of their code base, improving the test suite, upgrading the framework that they're using, but have heard, not right now, maybe later, a few too many times, and don't feel like it's worth asking anymore. What advice would you offer them if they didn't have the luxury of hiring someone like you? They didn't have the luxury. Um, I mean, it is still a luxury, but depending on how much time they've been there, I would just tell them to leave. I cannot do that as a consultant. Once I'm hired, it's part of my contract to not talk with employees about telling them to change company. It's just not something I can do. But here in the podcast, I can tell you, just leave. There's a lot of job positions out there. There's remote positions. They're rare. It's harder for minorities because there's still a lot of bias in the industry. And it's mm -hmm. terrible, but it's there. So it is still a luxury. Leaving is still a luxury. Otherwise, don't leave, but work towards leaving. Yeah, Make yourself remembered, as in what you did. You did right. And people that come after you are going to like what you did. And look at what kind of decisions you made there and be you know appreciating them this is unlikely gonna happen because the first rule of engineering is that the previous guy was always doing stuff wrong 
uh, it's one of the first things you have to do. You jump in a company and say everything is wrong. But that happens, right? You just look around and you're like impressed by how terrible everything is. Do your best. That's all you can do there. It's a culture problem at that point. And I am really not necessarily the best person to solve that kind of issue. I'm also very opinionated on this stuff. And I also have the luxury of leaving. And I even got fired for pushing my thoughts about this on a code review process which I think is something that everyone in the industry understands now, but evidently not 100% of the development population. Leave. Find a different company. That's okay. Don't be too scared. Just make sure to leave once you have a foot in the other job, please. Don't just jump out and tell, oh, Marcus said that, and now I'm... You know, I can't pay my rent or whatever. Don't, don't do that. No, no, no. Yeah, I think one of the things that I find when I'm talking with developers and they find themselves in a situation like that is like how much I think they're people in the, within the business, like stakeholders, how little appreciation sometimes they can find for just like employee retention is such an important part of it. So it's like, why would you prevent if your developers are responsible for the technology choices that your business is making and, and they're the ones that need to take care of it and provide support for it and be, you might need to call at two o'clock on a weekend in the morning to fix an issue, but you're not giving them some say into what's best for that area. If you're not you know, in that space yourself, I think like retention of your employees should be way higher of a priority. And I don't think people want to lose anyone. Like if you have your best salesperson and you're telling that best salesperson, like, ah, don't sell our business in this sort of way, but don't be that effective. Like they wouldn't do that to a salesperson. It's just like a different thing. Like, well, that's just the, the dev team. So yeah, I, I do think you're right. It's a cultural problem. But I think it's a, sometimes those companies need to learn through those experiences of like maybe losing some of their good talent. There's one very important thing here. You said about employee retention. This is a problem that I'm seeing specifically here in Germany in companies where I worked on location, which is that they cannot find developers, regardless how much immigration and how much people are complaining about immigration, because there are also these obtuse people that don't understand that we need immigrants. We really need them, by the way. There's a scarcity of talent. This is not a job that you can learn from one day to another. It's a job that takes years and years to get good at. And hiring people at some point is more of a problem than actually throwing money at them. So I've seen multiple companies throwing out really huge amounts of money and still not being able to retain talent because at the end of the day, I want to work on something that makes me happy because regardless if I make 60K or 120K, nobody's going to pay for my liver, for my mental illness, for my nervousness, and for the time where I spend, you know, with health issues instead of with my family or with just being happy or with what I'm doing. If I have an issue with the work environment that comes down to the fact that the technical reasons behind my being unwell are being ignored, then that's less important than my pay. And a lot of companies are reaching the point where they are just raising the salary, raising, 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 raising more. And they can't find people because they're known to have a terrible code base. Like there's really projects out there. I can't mention which ones, but people actively tell others, don't go work there because their code base is like this. And then once you get that advice, it doesn't matter if you get 20K more a year. 
because at the end of the day, you still want to relax and think about other stuff and not be nervous about, oh, everything I did today was terrible. And today I have to go again there and do the same thing. And it makes you feel miserable. You know, job is not just the pay. We are lucky enough to not be working in a coal mine yet. There's a nice joke. 20 years, there's going to be two jobs. There's going to be Jeff Bezos and coal miners. But effectively, there needs to be some, some pride in what we do. And if we don't have that pride, then you don't do it. And you just go for the company that pays less and does the things correctly. And there you go. You lost an employee that maybe had two years of knowledge about your code base and you're never going to get that knowledge back because your processes did not document, test, or make what they were working on stable. You're right. I think that's a, a good point to kind of wrap things up there. In terms of uh, a few final questions for you, what book do you find yourself recommending to software engineers most often? I must say Effective Java is the book that I've read that had the biggest impact on my career. It's a very old book at this point, but it contains, it's, it's like a compendium of bugs. If you are starting in development and you haven't learned by getting kicked in the teeth, you're going to read a compendium about how to get kicked in the teeth. And you're <laughs> going to be like, oh, look, that everything is shiny and nice. Absolutely that. Otherwise, I would suggest anyone to go through a Learn You in Haskell and break your brain with some properly interesting type stuff, type related stuff that changes the way you think. So this is for people that have been working in object-oriented programming and dynamic languages for ages and think that's okay. And then you read one of these books and everything looks terrible again. That's normal. Don't worry. You're not alone. Everything looks terrible at that point, but at least you know how to make things better. Then. Nice. Where can people learn more about you and your projects online? The best thing you can do is follow my Twitter. I can tell you there's going to be a lot of snark, a lot of salt, saltiness. I'm sorry. That's just my Twitter persona. I'm not that mean in person. Don't worry. I just like being mean on Twitter and people seem to like that. That's the farce that I'm going to probably keep there. So follow my Twitter, Okremis. Uh, that's going to be good enough for ruining your evening. Thanks for joining us today, Marco, and pleasure having you on Maintainable. Thanks to you for listening. <laughs>